Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Winamp for Android, the ultimate media player for your desktop and Android device, featuring wireless sync. Download it free at winamp.com slash Android. Video bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 284, recorded January 19th, 2011. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 109. Security Now is brought to you by Astaro, the ultimate in unified threat management. For an Astaro demo in your office, visit astaro.com or call 877, the number 4, A-S-T-A-R-O. And by MailRoute. MailRoute is a secure, hosted service that filters viruses and spam for companies of any size. To try it, or to save 10% for the life of your account, visit MailRoute.info. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers your security and privacy online. And here he is, ladies and gentlemen, the man in charge, the key keeper. (laughs) Gozer. (laughs) The key master. No, Steve Gibson. Uh, of GRC.com, the Gibson Research Corporation, the creator of Spinrite, the man who discovered the first spyware, named it spyware, and created the first spyware uh, fighter, uh, a task which he has handed off, of course, to many other companies since. Hey, Steve, how are you today? Hey, Leo. Great to be with you again, as always. Uh, Q&A today. Yes, our 109th Q&A for episode 284, and uh, not much has happened Happily. <laughs> yeah, that's always good news. No news is good news no. in the security world. Exactly. I'm never complaining when, when that's the case. Uh, we uh, have, I mean, the other culprits, we had Microsoft, of course, with their second Tuesday, Patch Tuesday, as it's become known, last week. Um, but Adobe and, uh, I mean, I imagine Google's Chrome browser is probably continuing to sneak forward and just keep itself updated in a stealthy fashion as they have designed it. But We've got a little bit of news and some errata, and then uh, 10 great questions and comments and thoughts from our listeners. We should remind people that every other show we do a Q&A, and you can always leave your questions for Steve at grc.com slash feedback. And uh, yep. that's where you'll, that's where you got the questions for today. Steve calls the questions. We'll get to those in a second, but what's happening in the, uh, it, there is some security news. There is a little bit of news. I noted, I got, actually, I chuckled to myself because um, our listeners may remember that last week on our podcast, I, I made the claim or the statement that given what was still coming out about the Stuxnet worm, which was believed to have attacked, been, been designed specifically to go after Iran's nuclear enrichment program, when I learned that it was masking its presence by sending back information to the monitoring systems indicating that the systems were still running, at the, that the centrifuges were still running at the, at the specified and correct speeds, when in fact it was screwing around with them to make them run faster so they would damage themselves, I said, okay, if, if this is all the case... There's no way 
that this wasn't tested extensively beforehand by someone who had access to exactly this equipment. That is, you, you could not theoretically design this software just from specs and not put it through extensive testing. So what I got a kick out of was the front page story on the, of the New York Times Sunday said that Israel and the U.S., and it named the locations where exactly this equipment was set up and used for developing and testing the operation of the Stuxnet worm. They had the so centrifuges. Like, they had this. That, it was exactly it, that, what you posited two weeks ago. Right. In fact, somebody sent me an email saying, well, the time's finally caught on. <laughs> <laughs> So that well done, Steve. You we yeah. you, you predicted it. It, it, it. There was you. You just couldn't design something right. that was going to be that was this specific to this hardware without having a, like a lab set up that had exactly. I mean, a, a prototype of what existed in Iran had to be somewhere else. And so, and I noted that John Markoff was among the reporters that was in this, and of course, he's been with the with right. the. Uh, industry for a long time he's, he's so. the most technically sophisticated reporter in the business i would a mainstream reporter in the business i'd guess then i got a kick out of another little bit of news and that is that on june 8th which happens to be a wednesday so we'll be recording a podcast on june 8th uh -oh. is the first global scale ipv6 trial date yay we can be there <laughs> it'll be like and the uh, y2k right it, well, and and what I what I noted was it's like wait a minute we're running out of addresses in November. Yeah, they're not wasting. They're not hmm, <laughs> getting on it that quickly. Exactly. You know we're so, we're going to have apocalypse uh, uh, November, right? I mean it's just going to melt down, right? Well, actually, one of the questions that we'll be getting to in the uh, later on in this podcast is. What exactly is it that's going to happen right. when we run out? Good. And so I'm again. We'll talk about. We'll <laughs> we'll talk about this. But so so what's happening on June eighth is that is that Facebook, Google, Yahoo, Akamai, and Limelight are the, at least those five services are going to be making their facilities available over IPv6. Now, actually, Google has had search on IPv6 for quite a while. Oh. You could, if you have an IPv6 address, you could go to ipv6.google.com and come into Google through IPv6. So they've, all, they've already been there. Um, but the idea is that for 24 hours on June 8th, all of those services will be available specifically through IPv6. And, and, and again, while that's good, I mean, this should have been like a year ago. And so it's like, well, okay, I guess, I mean, that <laughs> is like, well, let's see, June, July, August, September, October, November. I mean, we're guessing November timeframe for, for running out of this. And I saw someone trying to explain to, to someone who didn't get it what IP v4 depletion was and i had tried to describe it myself to to some friends not long ago and someone said well just imagine like the phone system running out of phone numbers which which it kind of like, did remember we got all those new area codes that's well, what happened 
Exactly. The original structure, it used to be, for example, that an area code, the center digit was either a zero or a one, which is why we had 714. Uh, right. 405, right. 213. And the bigger metros so, had a 1 because it was faster to dial a 1 than it was a 0 on the dials. It would go... And, <laughs> well, and the primitive, the, 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 the primitive mecha- electromechanical dialing systems, right. they used that, that key of whether the, the center digit of 3 was a 0 or a 1 to determine whether it was an area code because none of the prefixes had that. And so that allowed them to disambiguate those two things. Um, but the, the other thing, the other place where we ran out, remember the 800 numbers. It used to be that toll-free numbers were only 800 and then something. Well, they did run out of 800 numbers and then had to add 818 and, right, and yeah. a few others. 888, so yeah. We, so we've sort of seen that before. Um, but anyway, so we'll, we'll talk about the consequence of that later in the show. But I did sort of think, yes, well, it's good that we're having a global scale trial of IPv6 this summer. But it does seem a little bit late for relative to... Well, I know, can't wait. So in a little later on in the show, us. we're going to find out what that means, what, what, what the consequences means. would be in, uh, in November or whenever yep. this runs out. And then another very good piece of news, apparently... There has been pressure from the Federal Trade Commission, FTC, the U.S. FTC, and others about the fact that Flash is being so pervasively used to store tracking data in the so-called LSO, the local storage objects, which Flash supports. And we've talked about the fact that there are companies that specialize in reconstituting deleted browser cookies from the so-called Flash cookies, which are these LSOs, and that there's no obvious or simple user interface for Flash. Flash is a browser plug-in, so you so it's sort of transparent. You, you go to a site that's using Flash, and things happen, ads jump around. They're, they're, in fact, their whole website could be Flash-based, as is the case in some, in some cases. Where, but, but, but Flash itself doesn't have a user interface. It's just meant to be used as a plug-in. So what Adobe has done, and I'm, I'm, I'm led to believe that Chrome within several weeks, will be the first to, to have a UI for it. Adobe has, has published an API, an application programming interface, for access to their local storage objects for the sake of allowing them to be deleted by browsers, which could be providing a, 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 a user interface to that. Chrome apparently being the first, but Mozilla, Google, and Adobe, I'm sorry, Mozilla, Google, and Apple teamed up with Adobe to do this. So I would imagine that Firefox will will offer the same sort of thing very quickly since they were um, part there and presumably Apple with their Safari browser. So that's just good news. That gives users the ability to do this. The reason browsers are involved at all is that browsers are are essentially presenting this this facility through flash to the user so it does make sense that since browsers have a mature user interface of of controls and settings and toolbars and so forth why not 
allow the the object which is instantiating the flash object, which is the browser, to also give it the control that it otherwise lacks. So that's good news. We'll, we'll keep an eye on that and as, as, as announcements of browsers that are supporting this LSO deletion uh, occur, uh, I'll let our listeners know. Very good. Um, I've been a user of the eBay and PayPal dongle, which we talked about quite a while ago, f ever since we talked about it. You know, it's the little football, as we've often referred to it, which you press the button and you get a six-digit six code, which you then enter into, for example, PayPal, when you're logging into PayPal to authenticate yourself. It, it's a one-time um, password approach a, a multi that gives multi-factor authentication. But the problem is, being a physical token, if you ever want to, for example, in my case, purchase something on, on eBay or through PayPal when, you're, when it's not with you, that's a problem. Just the other day, I decided, I, I was like browsing around and noted that VeriSign, which is the source of these things, supported a BlackBerry client. So I added it to my BlackBerry and was very pleased and impressed with how simple this is and and essentially how functional it is essentially the and and this is a now available for many of the different smartphones i didn't think ahead to check to see if it's android yeah, there, i think and yeah, iphone i think both i know it's yes yeah and and so essentially when i when i run this on my blackberry run the little app it it comes up and shows me the the serial number for this instance, which is unique, of this instance that I, of this of this little authentication app that I'm running, and a six-digit code, and also shows me a little expiration timer, which counts down from 30 seconds, and every 30 seconds it changes this number, and so they they show me that so that I'm able to see whether I have time to type it in before that expires, and. I simply registered the serial number of that was presented on the screen with PayPal telling them, oh, look, I have a second authentication dongle now, and now I'm able to, to do the same level of uh, multi-factor, one-time password style authentication wherever I am, because I've always got my my blackberry with me when i'm out roaming around so yeah i think that's mention, better than a dongle i really do because people have their phones all the time i really like yes. doing it that way yes i think it's, it's terrific and in fact now i'm back having to tell paypal which of the two uh, right. objects i'm using which is annoying because it, it makes me go through that step right. whereas when i only had one of them it knew which one i had and that allowed me to just to just Add that six character or the six digit um, passcode to this to after my password in one phase. So I'm now seriously considering deregistering my football and all using my BlackBerry. So I wanted to let our users know that that that, that this has all actually really happened because I know when we talked about the football originally, there was a huge amount of interest in it as a as a opportunity for increasing security and that now that Verisign has pushed all these little clients out to smartphones uh as you say leo it, it's just a terrific solution yeah 
Yeah, it, uh, it is. It is on my Android, I believe, and I believe I saw an iPhone app. So I think it's everywhere. I mean, it would only yeah. make sense if they're going to put it on BlackBerry. They're going to put it on iPhone and Android, right? Probably first. Yeah, in fact, exactly. So finally, in an errata, I got a a note from someone who didn't disclose his full name. He called himself Ken F. He's a cybersecurity manager with an undisclosed government agency, and he said. Steve, a huge fan of TNO, which of course is my acronym for Trust No One, and been listening for the past two years to Security Now. A few episodes ago, you were discussing the exfiltration of the data from the government's classified networks relating to WikiLeaks. I wanted to provide you the correct pronunciation of that classified network. I was calling it CyperNet, S-I-P-R-N-E-T. And he's, he sort of breaks it up phonetically, and he says it's pronounced SIP, S-I-P hyphen, P-E-R hyphen, N-E-T. Cipernet. So, Cipernet. Yeah. He says, thank you for all your stellar work in this field, along with breaking down the many complex issues to usable and understandable chunks. Ken F., cybersecurity manager from an undisclosed government agency. So, <laughs> I love that. Cipernet. Cipernet. Now we know. And I did have a short little note from another listener of ours, Tom Leonard, who said he wanted to drop a note to let me know about Spinrite. He said, I just recently purchased it as I provide computer tech support for the South Dakota School of Mines and Technology in Rapid City, South Dakota. I always loved that says, name. It sounds so 18th it's a 19th century. Mines and Technology. Yeah, South Dakota City School of Mines Isn't and Technology. Great? He says, I found out about, well, it's sort of like 3M, you know, the, 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 the well-known right. 3M corporation. Was it Minnesota Mining and Milling? Manufacturing. Manufacturing, yeah. Yeah, that's what 3M actually stands for. It's like, okay, good thing they shortened it. Anyway, and he you says, know, KFC of- stands for Kentucky Fried Chicken. <laughs> right. <laughs> they, they didn't like the fried part anymore. Yeah. I found out about your product from watching you and Leo on the Twit Network, which is what's happening right now, specifically your Security Now segment. I truly missed Leo Aww. and his time and his time he spent on the screensavers and call for help. But now I think he's found his niche and is truly the best for us geeks. Anyways, on to my story. I purchased your product about six weeks ago and thought, when am I going to try this out? Well, this morning, I went to boot my personal netbook, and the blue screen of death shows up. Well, since there's no floppy or CD drive, I had to create a bootable USB flash drive. The first flash drive I tried wouldn't boot. So I went to your FAQ page for Spinrite and found that some flash drives don't work properly. So I tried another flash drive. This one worked fine and booted right into Spinrite. I ran the recovery and repair level, number two, I believe, and it started checking things. It got to about 7% and just seemed to stall, but it appeared to be continuing to work. It moved the files and sectors, declared one sector to be unrecoverable, but apparently recovered most of that sector's data. After about four hours total, it finished. I rebooted, and up came the computer. It now starts up and shuts down much faster. So this area of the disk must have been going bad for a while. 
Steve, thanks again for Spinrite, and I plan to keep on watching you on Twit with Leo. Aww. Thanks, Tom Leonard. I think that's generally so, the case. A lot of people complain about their systems slowing down, and uh, many times it's merely uh, one or two bad sectors on the drive, which Windows spends a lot of time trying to read in order to boot or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, imp so moving stuff off of that one sector can make a huge difference. And then Spinrite will, will remove that sector from use and causing the drive to bring in a, a swap in a right. spare. Spinrite will then re replace the data. And one of the things that Spinrite can uniquely do is e even if it's finally absolutely unable to recover every last bit of data, it will, it will, um, uh, return as much of the 512 bytes as it was able to read, even if not all. And sometimes that makes a difference. It'll let you know that right. that's what it did. But, for example, if that's a chunk of, of, of directory space, it may actually be that, that, that the part that it couldn't read wasn't necessary, right. but was just slowing things down. Could so have been slack you, space. You, yeah. even an unrecoverable sector, right. uh, it's able to get most of it. Right. Steve, we're going to get to your questions. We've got 10 good ones for you, including, and I'm very curious, what happens in November with IPv4. <laughs> but before we get to that, can I say hello to our friends at Astaro, the very first sponsor on the Twit Network, still with us. They were the first to sponsor Security Now, and uh, I still am so, I, I just love them. And I'm really glad that they're, uh, they're, they're still supporting this network. I think it's almost been four years now. Since maybe five since Astaro started advertising on security now. What is Astaro? Oh, oh, I should tell you. <laughs> it is, they're a security company, and their, their chief product is the incredible Astaro Security Gateway. Uh, if you're in the business, you'll know what UTM is. It's Unified Threat Management. It's an appliance. You plug into your network. It protects your corporate network from the outside world using best-in-class uh, in open and commercial software. To provide you with superior protection from spam, from viruses, from bad guys, and adds convenience features like VPN over SSL, intrusion protection, of course, full content filtering. You can control your, your users' uh, P2P and IM access, an industrial-grade firewall with all the you know, appropriate keywords like SPI and so forth. And all in a very easy-to-use, high-performance appliance, which will scale with your business. They have a very, I think, very sophisticated, what they call it, active-active clustering. But basically, uh, it enables load distribution for up to 10 Astaro security gateways. Uh, as your business grows, you can grow with Astaro. Uh, that's patent-pending technology. They also do something I really love. They offer um, home user licenses for free. Full licenses. With the full V7 Astaro and complete access to Astaro up to date, which is their uh, automatic update feature. They do limit it to, uh, I think, 10 IP addresses, 10 users, which is absolutely sufficient for home. Uh, but a great way to try Astaro. There's even a VMware appliance of Astaro, so you can try it. But, but you'll, you know, if you, if you get it for the business, you'll get the full unit hardware and all that software and the Astaro up to date and all of that stuff. You could try it. Uh, they'll give you a demo in your business. That's an easy, that's easy PC. Just call. 877, the number 4, A-S-T-A-R-O, if in the, you're in the U.S. Outside the U.S., visit A-S-T-A-R-O.com. They are a global company, and uh, they have demos all over the world. But in the U.S., 1-877, the number 4, A-S-T-A-R-O. That's 877-427-8276. This is simply the best UTM 
out there. And I love the convenience features, the ability, for instance, to uh, do automatic encryption, decryption, and signing of email, completely transparent to your users using SMIME or OpenPGP. And you can have groups of users or, you know, you, you can group it. Individual users can have their own signatures. It's very sophisticated. SSL, uh, VPN, using industry standards like IPsec, L2TP over IPsec, and PPTP tunneling. I don't want to. I don't want to drown you in buzzwords, but it's fully buzzword compliant. <laughs> Let's put it that way. <laughs> you try it out right now. Eight seven seven the number four A S T A R O and Astaro. Thank you for being such long term supporters of security. Now, yeah, I, I can't. I have to check the calendar. I think it's been five years. It's amazing. Um, in in many ways, we I you know I owe twit to Astaro because nobody would advertise on this network until Astaro came along. And uh, and uh, once Astaro showed that not only could it be done, but it works, then we got a few other sponsors after that. Yeah. Robin Melbourne with our first question of the day. Are you ready, Stephen? Absolutely. He says, now script is already adding do not... I shouldn't do my Australian. It's terrible. <laughs> and every time I do it, I get an email from somebody saying, hey, mate, we, we love the show, but don't try to talk Australian. Steve, just thought I'd drop you a line to tell you uh, that NoScript seems to be adding headers to my HTTP queries regarding web tracking. Specifically, a header X, do not track, and X, behavioral ad opt-out. Cheers from sunny Australia, Rob. Well, and first of all, that, somebody has to uh, uh, abide by those headers, right? Well, yes. Um, you, you may... Notice that, uh, I mean, I've asked for this, I mean, suggested that yeah. this would be a great solution for dealing with the problem with tracking. But this was the first I had heard that NoScript might be doing that. But, that, but is so this a standard? I mean, are these headers standard? No. No. Um, well, so, but that's fine because we have a chicken and egg problem here. I mean, we, someone has to start doing this right. so, that, so that these things exist. And um, so I fired up my packet capture, uh, refreshed a, a Google search page that I had up, and sure enough, those two headers uh, are being, ever since the 28th of December, 2010, so not yet for a month, so this is, I think it was zero, uh, version 2.0.9 is when Giorgio added this to NoScript. And so I shot him a note saying, hey, this is fantastic. And uh, we corresponded briefly about it. Um, uh, what he wrote on his posting was he says, from now on, a web browser with no script, in, with no script installed warns every HTTP server it contacts that its user does not want to be tracked, i.e., that this data must not be collected for profiling and persistent identification purposes. I believe this is a safe assumption about the feelings of most, if not all, NoScript users. As stupid as it may sound, parens, why parties who are interested in tracking you would comply, close parens. <laughs> True. <a> me uh, <laughs> I mean, it's uh, not in their interest. <laughs> correct. A means to clearly express your will right. of not being tracked is going to be useful, 
especially when backed up by law or industry self-regulation, as explained here. Therefore, it seems in the interest of NoScript users and privacy-concerned netizens in general to participate in this effort. In its current release, NoScript allows the Do Not Track feature to be disabled or tweaked by opening about colon config and editing the noscript.donottrack.star preferences. And so he's got three three preferences where there's an you can enable it the whole system or not, meaning that you could disable it if you just want didn't want that to be to be added to your queries. Then you can list a set of URL patterns which are space separated of destinations, uh, query destinations, which are not to be sent the do not track me message. Or, well, and, and then you, you can also, so, so that's called exceptions, where you can have exceptions to the, to the um, uh, add the do not tra- track header. And then, if you, and then thirdly, you can force specific ones that do qualify to still be forced. And he says, a graphical user interface, a GUI, for these options and possibly finer grain controls, for example, to allow some or all of the third-party trackers on certain websites only, will be added in future releases. So, anyway, I just, this is great. This is something, you know, we know that, for example, do not track um, uh, legislation is being considered there, there's talks of this happening. I can't think of a better place, as I have said often before, than for our browsers to simply add a header that says, I do not want this query to be tracked. And it's here. So, yes, it's true. No one obeys it yet. But we have to have it for anybody to obey it. So it would be great, for example, if Safari and Chrome and Opera and the other browsers, and IE, were to pick up on this and implement the same thing, then it would be a simple matter of of legislators saying, look, if somebody has this in their headers, you're not to track them. And then, of course, sites would have then the ability to say, well, we really do need tracking in order to support ourselves." So then they would be able to present to the user a notification saying, whoa, you've tried to enter the site with tracking blocked, uh, you're going to have to make an exception for us if you want our content. In which case, the user could decide, eh, don't need it that much, yeah. and you know, vote vote by saying uh, no thanks, or they'd say yes, and then again, you know, Giorgio and other UI designers could make it simple to add a track, a tra- allow tracking exception on a site by site basis. So. If this all happens, we're we're you know we're beginning to get to where we want to be. Another great reason and, to use NoScript. Yes, uh, you know, uh, just as a side note, I've seen these X headers in uh, email. You can have an arbitrary X header in uh, email, and, and it whether it's the server sees it or not, or acts on it or not, is completely up to the server. I didn't realize you could also do the same thing with HTTP requests. It's the same mechanism, yeah. I guess. Yes, the the idea is that the the X hyphen as the prefix says. This is not part of a of the standard. So, for example, we we we'd have query headers. For example, uh, like expire the expires or the referrer, you know, the HTTP referrer header, and and so so any query 
does have headers, which are part of the so-called metadata. There's not something that the user sees, but it's something that the browser is sending. And by, by in the spec, it says non-spec-specified headers, that is sort of optional headers, can be, can be included just by sending X hyphen and then the header name. And, and in, in this case, what I saw in the packet capture was that they were the header colon one for X do not track and the same thing for X behavioral ad opt out um, was, was a colon one. So essentially saying true that I do not want to be tracked. So, so yes, uh, in the, exactly in, this, in analogous for, for, uh, fashion, as you said, Leo, to email, mm. this can be done. I know, for example, that the because uh, I've done a lot of work over in NNTP, the network news transport protocol uh, that news groups, the, the, for example, GRC's news groups use, has the same sort of facility. And I invented some headers for our own purposes um, that run in the same vein. Yeah. Okay. Uh, question two, Jamie in England. I won't do an English accent either. Wonder, <laughs> or a phony one anyway. Wonders about IPv4 doomsday. Steve, when uh, you were recently talking about IP version 4 addresses, de- address depletion, you said that the day we run out of all IPv4 addresses would be doomsday. Well, how can this be the case? Surely all the equipment we already have on the net will be fine and continue to talk to each other. It's just that no one new will be able to join us. Am I correct? So it's only a mild concern, right? Could the new clients joining the net simply not simply go through an IPv4 proxy to talk to the rest of us? Thanks. Love the show. Keep up the good work. So he said, what, is, what does it mean, IPv4 doomsday? Okay, so... First of all, I, I guess we should a- say up front, just to set the stage, anybody who listens to the show I'm sure knows, that IPv4 dotted quad allows for, what is it, 2 billion addresses? 4, Four. billion. 4 billion addresses. Four. 4.3 billion different unique IPs. Every computer uh, uh, that is on the internet has to have a unique public address, just like a unique phone number. And yep. we're running out. We don't. We've gone through. We'll have gone through four billion addresses in November, roughly. Right. Um, essentially, back when this, when the internet was being designed, there was. It, it was very. It's very much like the same story with RAM. Remember that, for example, the the uh, the Apple Four allowed you the original i mean apple for the original uh apple computer allowed you to have 64k of ram and we all knew no one would ever need more than that plenty plenty (laughs) exactly i mean what could you possibly do with more than 64k (laughs) so so you know this is not the first time we've ever like run out of resources one way or the other we tend to do this because the technology lives much longer than we expect it ends up not being obsoleted as quickly as we expect it just wants to grow forever so back when the original designers established 32-bit addresses even then they allocated them inefficiently. So there are big chunks of that 4.3 billion addresses which cannot be used. Um, we, we talked about this several times in the past, so I won't go all the way through it. But we are, around the end of this year, running out of space. Now, if I ever said doomsday, then I'm not happy with myself for having declared it doomsday because it's not doomsday just exactly as jamie in england asks it is exactly like 
you suggested, Leo, if we ran out of phone numbers. Well, if we ran out of phone numbers, then people wanting new phone numbers would have a problem because all the existing phone numbers would be in use, but the ones that were already there would still work. So the bad news is that the transition from IPv6, from IPv4 to IPv6 is going to be an incredible mess. It is, there isn't an elegant way to do it. I think it's one of the reasons everyone are just dragging their feet as much as they are. The reason we're not even doing this global, full global test of only five large sites until summertime. It's, it is a, a catastrophe of just, you know, that, that everyone wishes and is hoping somehow we're not going to have to address. I mean, even for me, my entire infrastructure, grc.com's infrastructure is all IPv4. Shields up all the code that I've written, all my packet management stuff, everything is 32-bit IPv4 addresses. And so the day that I have to bite the bullet and implement this as all IPv6, I'm not looking forward to. I mean, I can because I wrote all this code. It's all raw, my own raw packet stuff. So there's nothing preventing me from manufacturing IPv6 packets, except I'm going to have to go off and write a whole bunch of code that I'm not looking forward to. So certainly on this podcast during 2011, as I have said before, 2011 is going to be the year that IPv6 really does happen. We will be talking about transitional things a lot. We'll be talking about the, con the, the conversion from IPv4 to v6, proxying and natting and, and gateways. There are things like IPv4 tunneling, where you tunnel IPv6 content through IPv4 through network segments that aren't IPv6 aware, but they still can support tunneling. I mean, it, there's, the, the, oh, it's just going to be a real nightmare. So we'll have lots to talk about. It's, we're, we're, obviously, we'll get there someday because we real, this, this IPv4 depletion really is going to be putting, finally, putting a lot of pressure on our ISPs and network engineers to start taking this very seriously. Everyone, including me, has been able to ignore it until now and wants to continue ignoring it as long as we possibly can because it's just going to be, you know, a lot of work without any feature change. Basically, it's not like we get anything, any great new benefits from it. It's just a lot more address bits is essentially all that happens. So the, the world doesn't end. Um, and I'm sure what we're going to see is IPv4 having a presence on the Internet probably forever. I don't think it's ever going to go away. It'll just be, you know, always there. I hope I get to keep all my IPv4 IP addresses and IPv6 users will still be able to get to me that way. So 
And I, uh, you know, I already have had people asking, hey, when is Shields Up going to support IPv6? And it's like, uh, <laughs> I don't know when. But well, know. So is there a workaround if somebody uh, wants? Okay, so in November, we run out. Uh, and um, uh, okay, well, so everybody example, has pools of numbers that aren't allocated. So your internet service provider probably has plenty of free numbers that they can allocate. Yeah, look for example at cell phones. So you could argue that cell phones are probably a class of device that really doesn't care what its IP address is. Right. The user doesn't even know. There's like there's no transparency to the end user about the IP address of a cell phone. Right. So um, that's a place where you could easily, uh, a high growth place, because that's where lots of these, you know, like Verizon is, is, is adding support for iPhones. And so uh, that's a place where you could easily sort of transparently bring up IPv6 in a way that end users would not be uh, made uncomfortable at all. And so, yeah, a place where you could have a huge increase in in space. Okay. I guess I won't worry about it. It'll just happen. I'll let you, yeah, I'll it's, let you wise guys figure it out. <laughs> and we'll be talking about it all year oh, long. Yeah. It's going to continue coming up. And in fact, what I'm planning to do when we do, as we will this year, as I promised, our our from the ground up how the internet works we'll have a huge chunk of new content which we've never discussed which is ipv6 all the gory details and all the tradition uh, the transitioning nightmares that we're going to be going through <laughs> <Woo -hoo. laughs> <laughs> question three tom zarucha or zaruka in the detroit area brings up a good point about SSDs, encryption, and the trim command. Steve, if the whole disk is encrypted in such a way that every sector is marked used, it will increase wear and maybe slow things on SSDs since it will have to shuffle full blocks. If only the used sectors are encrypted, if only the used sectors are encrypted instead of the whole disk, then the trim command can work to erase blocks for the unused sectors. Windows 7 is, of course, the only OS that currently supports trim. This will make it faster, most more reliable. I, uh, by the way, uh, I guess we should explain that there's, oh, yes. there's a weird effect on SSDs that kind of is like fragmentation, and it can it slows the SSD down. I asked at, at uh, CES, I talked to uh, two of the guys responsible for Intel SSDs, and Intel is really the creme de la creme of uh, uh, solid-state uh, hard drives, and uh, we're talking about those flash-based hard drives. And I asked him about trim, and you know, Windows 7 is the only OS that supports trim, and uh, most of the controllers, except for the Sandforce controller, maybe a couple of others, don't support trim anyway. Uh, so most hard drives don't support trim. And they said, well, what happens with most hard drives is there's this peak theoretical speed, there's a drop as you use it, and then it levels out and it pretty much stays there. All trim does is get it back. They, they, they actually, the two guys debated each other. One guy said, oh, it's important. The other guy said, it's not important <laughs> in real world. So there is debate even whether you need trim. But, but 
let, now let's continue on with your answer. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. I just thought that was kind of interesting. They're, they don't yeah, even that's, agree. That's great background, yeah. um, which I didn't have. I have the the, the low level technology side of it. Um, so here's the deal. Uh, you know, Tom's question is a good one, and it and it raises a very good point because he's responding to my answering a question two weeks ago about the the whole idea of full disk encryption on an SSD, where, uh, and I think the question was, would that slow things down in the same way that fragmenting might on a hard drive? And I said, you know, no, because once you were encrypted, the whole drive was encrypted, then, then you were just reading the same sectors from the SSD that you would otherwise. And Tr this issue of trim means that I was incorrect two weeks ago because of the way SSDs work. So here's the deal. When you, when you write a sector to an SSD, it must erase the contents due to the nature of the, the physics of the way an SSD drive works. It has to erase the sector before it can write it. The problem is that, again, due to the physics of SSDs, an SSD cannot erase a single sector. It is forced to architecturally erase a much larger block of sectors. Now, if the SSD knew, if it had a way of knowing that the other sectors in the block were not in use, did not have data in them, then it would not have to first read them and cache them inside itself, then modify the sector to be written, and then write them all back. Because again, we're, we're trying to change or write to one sector, but to do that, we have to erase that sector, which means we have to erase the whole block that that sector is part of. And if we're going to erase the whole block, we have to first read the whole block, then erase the whole block, then write it all back. So you can see there's much more work being done if the other sectors in that block have valid data. What the trim command, oh, and, and, I, and so I should also mention that in order to deal with this, in order to make SSDs functionally identical to hard drives, they manage all this internally. It's, it's amazing. These, the, and you referred to the SSD controllers. Right. That's the job of the controller inside the SSD package, which does all of what I just said transparently. It maintains a, its own proprietary bitmap of every single sector in the, in the space of the SSD and whether that sector has ever been written to. So as you write to sectors in the SSD, those little bits get set, telling it that that sector contains valid data. So... Over time, as you're writing to more and more of the SSD, more of these little bits are being set. 
But at the operating system level, you may be deleting files. When you delete files, as we know, we're only marking those sectors or clusters because modern file systems allocate in cluster sizes, which is a cluster of sectors. We're marking those clusters as no longer in use. We know that the file system is not going out and actually erasing them because that's how undelete utilities work is they come back and say, well, let's get the data if it hasn't been overwritten. We can recover the data that was was deleted and the user regretted making that deletion. What trim support in the op... Well, okay, so, so file systems are marking areas deleted, but... That information is not being given to the SSD. So as the, as the evolution of the ATA, the AT attachment specification has progressed, the designers of SSDs wanted to provide a means by which the operating system using the drive could reset those little bits saying these sectors are in use. So what, that's what trim, T-R-I-M, command does. The trim command is an extension to the ATA, the AT attachment specification, providing a means for communicating to the drive that the following sectors are no longer, no longer contain valid data as far as the operating system is concerned. So when we say that only Windows 7 supports the trim command, we're meaning that only Windows 7 is, is a popular operating system in use, which when and as you delete files from the file system, the, the Windows 7 uses, sends a batch of trim commands down to the SSD telling it that those sectors are no longer in use. And so the beauty of that is that it, it prevents these bits, these little in-use bits, from just accumulating without end, which they otherwise would in the SSD, telling the SSD that as you've deleted files, those sectors are no longer in use. So... Getting back to Tom's exact question, he said, if you ran TrueCrypt, for example, to encrypt the entire drive, it would set every single one of those in-use mm. bits in mm -hmm. the SSD because you have written to every single sector of the drive in order to encrypt the whole thing. And he is exactly right. So... What you'd really like to do is run whole disk encryption and then have a means for sending a full drive worth of trim commands telling the SSD, reset all of your sector in use bits, which you're using to manage those blocks, back to zero because... Even though we just wrote to the entire drive to encrypt it, we didn't store any valid data there yet. <laughs> so okay. um, there is a Linux utility called HDParam, 
which has that facility. There is some driver support. There, there, there's a utility that Intel has, um, a like a, a an an add-on utility where you can manually scan the file system and it will look at the clusters that are in use and then issue trim commands for those that are not but the the, the um, um I've tried to purchase two SSD drives from Intel which offers this support and I failed both times which is really annoying because I care about this kind of thing so and as you said Leo it's not even really clear that this is more than sort of a theoretical problem. Right. The, the, the controllers are doing a very good job of managing their SSDs. It's not like performance continues to descend forever until it becomes really, right. really slow. You, you, you do see a drop as these bits are being set, but then at some point, it's not such a big deal um, uh, Afterwards. I asked Alan Malventano, who's the guy who discovered this and kind of publicized it on PCPer.com and who is, uh, who's, of course, a regular on our uh, both PCPer and Twitch podcasts. And, uh, he, you know, I said, well, Alan, in order to create this uh, uh, benchmark and to show this, you had to really kind of create this synthetic, make a lot of small files, erase a lot of small files kind of a situation. So it's not even, it's not, the question is not whether this happens because you can demonstrate it. But the question is whether in real-world use it would be a significant degradation in performance. And even the Intel guys disagreed. <laughs> That's what I liked about it. One guy right. said, oh, no, it's a problem. And it's completely moot unless you're using Windows 7. Because no operating system except Windows 7 does it anyway. Correct. So unless your operating system does it, you, it's not, you're not going to... So it's, it's, an int it's, very, it's a really actually a, a kind of an angels dancing on the head of a pin argument and yet it's very i think it's fascinating and it's certainly something that is relevant if you want to use an ssd i've never and now I'm, I'm using it on os 10 so i've never noticed right i was saying, and now all of our listeners understand what the whole trim thing is yeah. with ssd now they're in man they're in they're with it jamie hunt england England. <laughs> did you write this or he did he write jamie hunt in england uk that's the way he wrote it. <laughs> okay. I mean, I know they're not the same thing, but I just think it's funny. It's, it's like saying in uh, the United States, North America. Wonders about driver update scanning. Steve, there seem to be millions of sites scattered about the Internet saying they will scan my PC for outdated drivers. Oh, you go vault. Uh -huh. <laughs> thanks, but no thanks. But 95% of these programs seem to be from an unreputable source, or at least a source with no reputation. My uh, question to you is, do you recommend using a program that will scan for outdated drivers and tell me to update, sort of like Secunia PSI for drivers? And if so, which one? Thanks. Well, you said it, Leo. Um, I wouldn't say that 95% of them are unreputable. I would say 999 Um It's basically giving them permission to see what you got. Yeah. And, uh, okay, so here's, here's the deal. Um, it is it is so tempting to want to have the very latest drivers for your machine, but it makes me feel like e e I feel even more strongly about this than I do about the the temptation not to always update to the latest software, because drivers are are even providing less incremental functionality than, than new versions of software. 
and it's not clear that you get a lot when you update to a new version of software. So I guess what I'm saying is that my feeling is if, if some device on your system is not working, then certainly try updating the device driver and see if that fixes the problem. But if it's all working, then I don't know what you gain from updating drivers to the latest versions, hoping that they're going to work better. Because drivers don't have that much ability, not, you know, to sort of like only work part way. They're generally working or not. And, and so, so my feeling is, you know, from, I've, I've never done a, a scan through some third-party site to, like, have it look at all of my yeah, drivers. It's a bad idea. You know, I really agree. I think it's a very bad idea. I, I know that, you know, I, I'm a Lenovo user, and, and Le, the Lenovo system has some, for several years now, a facility for checking its own drivers versus its own database and notifying you if things have changed. And invariably, what I notice is it's trying to give me new versions of drivers for where the only difference is it now supports laptops I don't own. And so it's like, well, okay, why do I care about, you know, changing this driver to support lap a laptop that, you know, that Lenovo now offers that I don't own. So I look carefully at what the benefits are of updating a given driver. You know, if it says, oh, we've made great strides in, in power management, it's like, oh, I need that. You know, that right. sounds like a good thing. But if it's, you know, we now support 16 new laptops, it's like, uh, okay, I don't think I'm going to be making the move for that reason. <laughs> and again, I would stick with the source of my machine rather than some random site that says, let us scan your machine and let you know if there's something new. Right. Uh, Windows like itself, idea. you know, if you it, Windows itself actually does a pretty good job of keeping drivers up to date. They're not in the critical updates; they're in the optional updates. But that's right. what I do. I just run Windows Update and I look and see if there's any uh, driver updates because I generally will use the ones provided by Microsoft, just because uh, they're tested for Windows. They, I mean, they may not yep. be the latest no, always, compatible. but they're known yep. good. Yeah, yep. And I find that that's fine. You know, it's funny how. Old habits die hard, and people who've been <laughs> PC users for a long time have all Skeptical. sorts. Of, yeah, well, they have all sorts of things that they do that were, you know, maybe needed, like defragging and, um, you know, updating drivers, checking your video driver. And I think as t as we've gotten to be a more mature system, if you're using Windows Seven, I think you probably can eliminate a lot of the stuff that we used to do to make. You know, you don't have to edit your config.bat anymore <laughs> and defrag your registry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Pretty much, if you're using Windows 7, you've given up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, that's another matter. <laughs> you know, I, yesterday I, was, uh, I did Live with Regis and Kelly, and we taped a second segment that'll air in a couple of weeks. They're going to do a Twitter week all week long. And, um, uh, and so I went up to Regis's office to tape this segment on teaching him how to use Twitter, which was fun. And he was using Internet. Oh, how fun. When is it going to air, Leo? Ju uh, January 31st. Okay, great. I don't want to... Tip it, but uh, it was really fun, and I think what's what most interesting. You know, yesterday he announced that he was leaving the show at the end of the uh, uh, summer, and uh, which was a big shock to everyone. No one knew this. I didn't know it. None of the producers knew it. Everybody went because they're all going, "Uh oh, <laughs> what do we do?" Uh, well, but and, and, and Re Re Regis is such a fun non-techie that I imagine you guys must have just had a ball. I adore him. First of all, he's eighty years old. 
He is wow. sharp as a tack. I mean, I've there are very few 80-year-olds who are as quick and as with it and, and on top of it as he is. He's the law. He, I, I, I read this after he announced the retirement, which was breaking news everywhere, that he is the currently the longest running on air talent in the you know ever in the world. I mean, there's nobody been doing it longer than Regis Phil, but he started with Joey Bishop in the 60s or 50s, you know. So uh, in any event, so it's a real honor. And I and I have always liked Regis. We I've just uh, we, we hit it off very well. And um, so we're doing this thing. And uh, after after it's, you know, done. Uh, Internet he's using IE it crashes it 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 it, it crashes on him and he says what's this Leo <laughs> I said I don't know we were just tweeting and it crashed and uh, and Gelman goes God I hate Internet Explorer it's like <laughs> it's so sad that normal people have to go huh I yeah. was just tweeting what happened and it crashed the browser I'm sure he's using I didn't look but I'm sure he's using like XP with IE six but. I didn't really even want to know. It was like I just like I just stepped back. I said, "I guess we're done." Uh, I don't think that will make it into the tape. By the way, Charles Victorian in Houston, Texas. Our next question. Actually, it's a long one. Before I get to that, I would like to just briefly mention, and I will do this quickly because I, I don't want to take up too much of your time. But I do want you to know about uh, mail route because it's how I avoid spam. You know, Dvorak was famous for getting I saying I get no spam. I can't say I get no spam. But I have to say, I get very little spam, and that's for the last six years, since 2004, uh, when I had my server. You know, I have my own leoville.com server that I have all my email go through. When I started, when I pointed my MX record to MailRoute, and I started doing that in 2004, it, I, it's unbelievable, the amount of spam. I'll give you some numbers. Tom Johnson, the guy who wrote it, I asked him, uh, I said, Tom, how am I, how, tell me what. What are my numbers for the last 12 months? He's in the last 12 months, you've, you've roughly a million uh, emails going to leoville.com. Oh, there's many, many addresses there. Of that million, all but 30,000 were spam. And we stopped them. You never saw them. They never went to your server. That's 970,000 messages that I would have used bandwidth for. I would have stored. I would have had to review. Maybe I'd have another spam solution that would have gotten rid of them so I didn't have to see them. But still... That's a lot of bandwidth it would have consumed. MailRoute saved me money as well as time, as well as eliminating all those Viagra ads I never did really want to see. If you have your own server, if you're a corporation, a, a school, uh, maybe, you're, maybe you're a law office or a medical office that doesn't want you know, a third party to, to, to process your mail, this is a great solution. You continue to run your own server, MailRoute just stops the spam before it hits your server. Find out more, save 10% on the life of your account if you go to MailRoute.info. I'm not going to belabor the point. It just works. MailRoute.info and a special deal for Twit listeners if you go there. We have a long one. This is from Charles Victorian in Houston, Texas. A follow-up on what he learned about uh, frequency hopping spread spectrum. Which I, I, this, this sounds like it's apocryphal, but I believe it's true. Was invented by Hedy Lamarr, the movie star. Did you know that? No. <laughs> No. Doesn't sound right. It sure doesn't. It doesn't sound right. He's a secret genius. She was a a starlet, a gorgeous woman. Uh, Orson Welles dated her for a long time. I did hear this once somewhere. She invented spread spectrum. I don't know how, you know, I'd like to know more about this. (laughs) Um, Frequency, I mean, Wikipedia talks a little bit about this. Uh, it was patented 
earlier than that. But it says in Wikipedia, the most celebrated invention of frequency hopping was that of actress Hedy Lamarr and composer George Anthiel, who in 1942 received a U.S. patent during World War II for their secret communications system. Lamarr had learned at defense meetings that she attended with her former husband, Friedrich Mandel, that radio-guided missile signals could easily be jammed. They used a piano roll to change among 88 different frequencies to make radio-guided torpedoes harder for enemies to detect or jam. Wow. And this patent came to life when ITT and other private firms began to develop CDMA. And they did the patent research. They said, whoa. <laughs> Hedy Lamar owns this. And 88 keys is the number of keys isn't, on a piano. Yeah, Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Yeah. Others, there are, there's prior art. But uh, independently, Hedy Lamar thought it up. I think it's fascinating. Steve, thank you so much. Just a historic note. Steve, thank you so much for taking on uh, my question about the Lorex Live Snap and its use of frequency hopping spread spectrum or FHSS technology. I was encouraged by your comments on the security, which might be implemented by the camera system. He had a, a baby monitor, I think, right? Right. And he didn't want people to watch his camera and his baby. So that, and he said, well, what is this FHSS they say they use? Right. Enough that I not only opened the one I'd already purchased, but went out and bought a second system immediately after hearing the podcast so I could do a little inter-system testing of my own. Now, this is, this is our listeners. This is why uh-huh. I love our listeners. <laughs> he didn't just say, oh, okay. He said, let me see. Reading over the user's guide, which I previously didn't have access to, explains how to pair up cameras, which gave me hope. The guide states, quote, the cameras included with the monitor have already been paired up with the monitor. So that's why he didn't have to do any configuration with the new one. And it goes on to explain right. how to pair up additional cameras. Since the base system comes with two cameras, yet the monitor supports up to four. I won't bore you with the details of the relatively simple process, but I will note in particular it requires you to begin with the camera turned off. Uh, additionally, under the tips section, the guide states the camera and monitor should be around a foot apart during the pairing process. So with some confidence gained by your coverage of FHSS on the podcast and a better understanding of how the product works from reading the included user's guide, I tore into the second box. While using a camera and monitor from the first set, I put the second monitor in pair mode. It responded with, quote, pairing, and some symbols indicated, indicating the weight. The process exited with, quote, no device found, even though this monitor was as close as I could get to the currently broadcasting camera. They're, they were plugged into separate outlets. And I didn't have an extension cord handy. Nevertheless, any neighbor, etc., is not going to be able to get closer than I was without being inside my house. So it's clear that once the camera's paired to a monitor, another stock monitor can't just show up and receive the signal. Good start. It seems like, as in Bluetooth, the pairing process should could leave you vulnerable for a few seconds when you're discoverable, effectively. But then the signal, once it's locked in and paired should be uh, unaccessible. It also seems that you would know if someone had hijacked your camera since your monitor would then say no device found. And that would be a clue. I know this doesn't address reverse engineering the system or building some sort of separate hacked monitor, but at least it isn't going to be an easy thing for somebody to drive by, set up a monitor, and watch my baby. Thanks for doing what you do. I always look forward to listening to every episode. I really miss Tech TV, but at least we still have you and Leo regards Charles Victorian. I like that kind of listener. Well, yes. And the fact that they referred to pairing, of course, that's, you know, the first really great piece of news. I, you know, you'll, our listeners will probably remember that 
basically we discovered we we covered frequency hopping spread spectrum several times relative to Bluetooth. And then when when I first entertained Charles' question, he was he hadn't even opened the box because he wanted to know whether it could be safe enough or whether it was just a scam. And of course, we couldn't answer the question. But I looked at their website. And explained what frequency hopping spread spectrum it was. Then went then that encouraged him to open the box where he found the manual, and and then, you know, they do take him through a process by which the the transmitter and the receiver need to get to know each other, and and then he further, as this as his note indicated, further tested this by taking not only just some random monitor, but you know the company's same brand of monitor, and and tried to see whether it would be able to receive the same signal when it hadn't been paired with the camera, and it wasn't. So, um, again, I, I think this is just, you know, a, a great example. I wanted to, to follow up, but also to give our listeners a sense for, for how you can determine this kind of thing on your own for, you know, anything else of this nature in the future. Yeah. So a little uh, inductive reasoning, really. Yeah. Question six, Brian Voller in uh, USA, Oregon, Medford. USA.Oregon.Medford. <laughs> I like how people are identifying themselves. That's great. Planet Earth in uh, the Milky Way. <laughs> no, solar system, Milky Way in the universe. Universe X394. Now you realize that's how I'm going to get these things sent to me in the future. <laughs> now <there>. on. <laughs> Narrow it down. <laughs> Uh, hello, guys. Regarding episode 282 and the question about the security of a wireless baby monitor camera that touted frequency hopping as a security mechanism, I would not regard that as effective, particularly in a video transmission context. Being a cheap camera, it's probably sending analog NTSC, which is what, uh, you know, standard definition television in the U.S. is, or EIA, that's a low-quality version of NTSC, and hopping frequency on the completion of each frame since the vertical blanking interval would make a convenient opportunity to let the tuner lock onto the next frequency. All that makes sense. Individual frames could be captured by scanning the frequency range slowly. Assuming 256 channels, once you found one of them, you'd get one frame every 8.5 seconds. Oh, that's an interesting uh, point. So, yeah, I thought I, I saw Brian's uh, question or comment and thought, well, this makes a good companion uh, to the one we just read. And that is to suggest that that frequency hopping is not security as as he as he does, and of course he 's right frequency hopping is not encryption; it is mostly used to avoid jamming and interference. This is exactly what Hedy Lamar apparently developed uh, this concept for uh, back in uh, wartime was not so much for security but for avoiding interference the idea being that if you're if you're if one particular frequency is being jammed you're only you're not going to spend much time there you'll still be able to get the bulk of your your signal through so uh, i feel you know i mean brian's point is that if somebody was absolutely determined to monitor this this uh information what they'd be getting is 
essentially a very non-standard signal. They wouldn't be getting a video signal. They'd be getting one frame of video, assuming that it's not digitized and it's not encrypted, which we don't know. It could be digitized and encrypted in addition to frequency, you know, the, the, the frequency hopping spread spectrum. But they'd be getting one frame on a given frequency, uh, as he said, every 8.5 seconds. But again, you'd have to then capture that and figure out how to display it because not no regular monitor is going to display that so anyway i i still feel that you know this makes great security much more so than just having a, a video transmitter sending a you know video out on, on a on a single frequency where as we know it's very possible to easily eavesdrop so yes not what we would call you know NSA grade security, right. but you you really have to work in order to get a useful picture back out of this thing every eight seconds. <laughs> yeah, and then and then you're just getting a frame of data that you then have to you know go to a lot of work to to reconstruct. Right. My feeling is if you can't use the manufacturer's own monitor to receive it, you, you then then you're that's <laughs> you're pretty much out of luck. Yeah, yeah. that's sufficient. And that's what our our prior questioner verified. Right. Bill Bolton in Australia raises a great point about IPv6 modem routers. Steve, if the world is going to be forced to move to IPv6 by year's end, why are almost no IP version 6 capable consumer modem routers available as yet? He's talking about when you get a DSL line, often case, they'll give you the DSL modem with a built-in router since they know you're going to hook up a router anyway. Uh, there must be well over a hundred different models of various makes on the market. I guess it's true also of cable modems, but yeah, just yeah. exactly, and and just other other NAT routers. Yeah, anytime you're getting online, it's not unusual to combine the two. Uh, uh, only three of the hundred different makes on the market have the necessary features. It seems more than a little strange to me. With one group crying, we're running out of IP addresses. That the manufacturers are saying, huh? <laughs> huh? What? <laughs> Yeah, I completely agree. Here's another example of it's not going to happen until it has to happen. If you if you look at NAT routers, they're still IPv4. I've not yet seen one that is supporting IPv6 features. It's just like no one's no one's actually doing it yet. Yet we're, we're running out of space. So it's going to be a really interesting year, Leo. <laughs> yeah. We yeah. talked to, uh, at the CES, we had Bob Frankston on. I know you know that name, Bob. Oh, cool, yeah. yeah along with Dan Bricklin, wrote VisiCalc. Actually, Bob did the coding um, many years ago. The, probably, if you were, were to say there was one application that put personal computing on the map, yep, it was that, because initially the Apple II was a toy, and as soon as you put VisiCalc on it, the first spreadsheet program, nobody had written a spreadsheet. Nobody even thought of a digital spreadsheet. As soon as you did that, it was like, business was now, okay, now I'm interested now I might want to buy one of those things. Anyway, Bob, uh, after his stint at VisiCalc, went to work for Microsoft as a, um, uh, you know, probably a high-level fellow. A and, thinker. Yeah, a thinker. And uh, this, he said, you know, in these days, the ISPs wanted to charge you for each user in the house. Uh, and I do remember those days where, yep. you know, it, it, basically each one would have a static IP address and you would have to pay the full freight or maybe a di slightly discounted rate. He said, uh, we were we were starting to create routers at the time and or he, it was his suggestion to put NAT in. And he said, I knew, <laughs> but I didn't tell anyone that this would effectively make it impossible for ISPs to charge per user. They'd have to charge per household because, of course, the NAT would hide all the additional users 
Uh, he said, I never mentioned that feature. I just said, it'd be a good thing to put Nat in these routers. <laughs> and, and that's what connection sharing is, of course. Right. And so he, he says, you know, if <laughs> you can thank me <laughs> for the fact that you are paying what you're paying for your Internet access. He had some other very interesting things to say. We decided to invite him in for a full hour uh, interview uh, for our triangulation show because he's a fascinating guy. And what I like about him, yeah, he created history 40 years ago with VisiCalc. Uh, but he's not sat on his laurels, and he's doing something very interesting right now that I'm uh, uh, really t- about taking back the internet that I thought was fascinating. He says the net well, neutrality conversations misguided. That's not what we need. He, he said there's a way to handle this. The other thing too is that by putting NAT in all these routers, not only were we preventing ISPs from charging per user, but we did hugely sh- slow down the depletion of the IPv4 address space. Because, you know, we, we've got, I mean, I'm sure probably all of our listeners have many different machines behind their single IP that's out there, their public IP. And we're all, how many, you know, we always are talking about 192.168.x.x addresses, which is, uh, you know, which we're all sharing, but which are uh, kept separate. Yeah, very good point. Thank you, Bob. <laughs> Bob Frankston. Uh, Aloke Prasad in Ohio has a question for you. He notes that Microsoft disagrees with you about swap files on SSDs. Okay, this I got to see. You said it was unwise to use an SSD for the Windows swap file. You're not alone, by the way. We mentioned Alan Malventano. Uh, You talked about your friend, uh, our good, our friend, um, um, Mark Thompson. Mark Thompson. The following article from Microsoft says otherwise. It's blogs.msdn. It's a 2000.com. It's a 2009, May 2009 article. Support Q&A for solid state drives. Quote, should the page file be placed on SSDs? Yes. Most page file operations are small random reads or larger sequential writes, both of which are types of operations that SSDs handle well. In looking at telemetry data from thousands of traces... And focusing on page file reads and writes, we find that, one, page file.sys reads outnumber page file.sys writes by about 40 to 1. Well, that's good to know. That's interesting. So in other words, there's a lot more reading going on than writing, 40 times more. Page file.sys read sizes are typically quite small, with 67% less than or equal to 4K, 88% less than 16K. Point three, page file.sys writes are relatively large, with 62% greater than or equal to 128K and 45% being exactly a megabyte in size. This is Windows, of course, only we're talking about. This is window, how Windows behaves. In fact, given typical page file reference patterns and the favorable performance characteristics SSDs have on those patterns, in other words, SSDs are faster with reads. They're, they're really great with lots of small reads because the seek time is zero. Um, there are a few files better than the page file to place on an SSD. Well, that kind of makes sense. The issue really more is this 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 thrashing of the SSD. But if the files are megabyte most of the time, is that does that ameliorate that? Well, this is a perfect example of a person answering a question from their perspective, but not an, a different perspective. That is, if all you were asking was about performance, then I completely agree. But my focus has never been on performance in this discussion. It's been on burning the things out, which this doesn't address at all. So all of those extra rights, regardless of the size of the rights, are not good. 
Correct. Reads we don't care about on an SSD. Lots of reading we don't care about. It's the writing we care about. Correct, because because writing now it writing is a is a physically uh, fatiguing process for an SSD. <laughs> you say um, that again. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> as, and, as the and, author and Mark, of thirteen books. <laughs> no, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Never do it again. <laughs> and um, and Mark Thompson and I've discussed this at length. He he's performed the experiment of of using an SSD for a swap file and watching it burn out the SSD. Mm-hmm. I mean, in a relatively short time, it just killed it. And so, anyway, so my advice stands, which is if you're using an SSD, hopefully before you have gone to the expense of using an SSD, which is still much more expensive than a hard drive, you will have invested money in as much RAM as your system can handle. Because RAM is much less expensive, and you'll get much more benefit. You'll get huge benefit from ex- from going to the the most RAM you can possibly get. And if you've done that, then turn off page files. And uh, if the only drive you have is an SSD, I just I I stand by my advice. I agree that from a performance standpoint, the SSD is a perfect device for containing the page file. Unfortunately, Microsoft thrashes their page file. I mean, they're writing to it a lot. Um, yes, 40, 40 times less than they're reading, but it's something that's going on all the time, pretty much. Um, I mean, we've all seen, you know, we, we've watched the hard drive light flickering there. Like when nothing is going on, it's like, what is it doing? Well, we, who knows? But we know that it's writing to the page file, which it does a lot. So anyway, I, I think it's a, it's a perfect example of two different people with very different aspects of the problem that they're addressing. I'm looking at long-term life. Microsoft's looking at performance. That's, that's really great. What a great illustration of that, depending on your point of view. I love that. Yeah. So we stand by our suggestion not to use the ssd for the page file unless you don't mind buying ssds regularly yeah right yeah. there it will be faster yeah, though so <laughs> <laughs> it will speed it up well could you put an s could you put a page file in a ram disk i guess you could that would be a good thing to do well it would make much more sense to leave that ram disk free for ram well yeah right of course the more ram you have the less you need a page file page file is all about what happens when you run out of ram but if you had a ram based hard drive ah. that is if you if you had a ram based you know physical drive that wasn't part of main memory and couldn't be part of main memory then so that it is so that it's like a separate paging device then absolutely mm-hmm. that would make a lot of sense our last question Stephen, from jim sanders in irvine california he wonders about uh ipod and ipad solid state hard drives because there uh, most ipods the only one the classic has a moving drive and uh, all the iPads are solid state. In fact, the MacBook Airs are also solid state. Steve, you talked about the finite number of write cycles on solid state hard drives, which I presume includes the array of portable devices like the uh, solid state iPod and the iPads. Given that, should we be thinking about minimizing the number of times we sync the devices? Hmm. Does syncing with the desktop shorten the lifespan of the SS hard drive? Long-time spin-write owner, save two machines for me. Sorry. One of the things that I thought I should do, I like this question because um, I think maybe I've concerned people unnecessarily. The least robust technology for SSDs is called the MLC, the multi-level cell. 
as opposed to the SLC, the single level cell, which is a, a which is the much much more expensive drive, but also more robust. But even the multi level cell, the lesser of the two technologies in terms of robustness, has a guaranteed minimum number of write cycles of about ten thousand. Now, I just divided ten thousand by 365, which is roughly the number of days in a year. And I get 27.397, which is to say that if you rewrote the entire drive daily, that drive would last for a minimum of 27.397 years. So, yes. <laughs> SSDs have a limited life, but so does the universe. <laughs> In a nutshell. <laughs> you know, what can you do? <laughs> so don't worry about it. Okay, that's good. That's good. I like it. Steve, you're always, uh, you know, this. I love this show. And I actually love the Q&As because of the wide range of topics. I know it's fun to drill deep into a subject, as we did last week with Bluetooth hacking. But it's also fun just to cover a wide range of topics. I always learn so much on this show, and I thank you for it. Do, do you know yet what we're going to do next week? We're going to talk about fuzzing. Fuzzy-wuzzy. Uh, browser fuzzing. It's the, it's the, the work that was done um, recently by the Google re, uh, security researcher who, using fuzzing, found interesting and in many cases significant problems, more than 100, with all of the browsers we're currently using. So we're going to talk about fuzzing, a different approach to finding security vulnerabilities. I love it. Next week on Security yep. Now. Meanwhile, if you want 16 kilobit versions of this show for the bandwidth impaired, if you want full transcripts and show notes, you can go to grc.com. That's Steve's site. While you're there, don't forget to take a look at SpinRight, the world's finest hard drive maintenance and recovery utility for, not for SSDs, for spinning drives. <laughs> Uh, you're going to have to come up with something for SSDs, Steve. I hope you're thinking yeah, about that. I'm thinking about it, actually. Yeah, that should be interesting. an interesting challenge. Uh, also, lots of free stuff. Shields up, decombobulator, sh don't shoot the messenger, just a ton of, actually shoot the messenger, <laughs> kill it dead. Uh, <laughs> and tons of great stuff that Steve just does out of the goodness of his heart and because he loves to write software and assembly code. Uh, you can find that all at grc.com. Uh, you can also watch this show. We do it live every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern time at live.twit.tv or subscribe. Uh, you really ought to because it's, in fact, you ought to go back and listen to all 284 episodes because it's, it's a graduate degree in computers and how they work. Uh, that's at twit.tv slash sn for security. Now, Steve, have a great week. Will do, Leo. Thanks very much. See you next week right here. Security Now.